and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Nicole Rowan, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. As a former ATO officer, I am delighted to be joined today by Emma Rosensveig, Superannuation and Employer Obligation Deputy Commissioner at the Australian Taxation Office. Emma is responsible for ensuring a complex ecosystem of employers, workers and retirees and super funds operate efficiently. She has worked at the ATO for 22 years and is passionate about developing leaders of the future and invest time in mentoring and coaching individuals and groups. And I was really love to read this about you, Emma. Emma holds a Bachelor of Laws, Bachelor of Commerce and Masters of Tax. Welcome to TaxYak, Emma. Thanks, thanks for Nicole. joining us. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So we're going to hear from you today about some recent changes in the employer superannuation space and some critical upcoming changes that all employers need to be aware of. So just, um, just a, a quick background. How long have you actually been in this role in terms of Deputy Commissioner for the employer superannuation area? So I've been in the Deputy Commissioner role in super for just about three months, which doesn't sound very long. Um, but I have in my 22 years in the office actually spent about eight of them in either superannuation or in the pay-as-you-go withholding space. So uh, I felt like I had a good background. I could hit the ground vaguely jogging when I started the role. Um, but I also know enough to know there's lots of changes in super. So it has been a bit of uh, getting up to speed and not just relying on what I remember it used to be. So um, quite new, but with a lot of experience. Yeah, no, that's terrific. Congratulations in terms of being in that role. And I think what you said about the changes is really evident to me as a tax banter trainer. We have a number of special topics and a couple of years ago, we did have a special topic on superannuation, but we've just uh, in the last month in September had another special topic on super because there are so many changes that are critical to the day-to-day work of employers in terms of ensuring that they're compliant with their super obligation and therefore uh, to uh, um, you know it's critical for the accountants to be aware of those changes and ensure that their employers are are being compliant. So the strange thing about employer superannuation obligations is there's not necessarily this positive duty to actually make superannuation contributions but The way it works is that an employer will have a superannuation guarantee shortfall if the employer super contributions are not made. So in effect, minimum super guarantee contributions are made by the due date. And when we say made, they're paid into the employee super fund by the due date to avoid having that super guarantee shortfall. So for any employer to understand their obligations, there's a number of key terms that they have to be aware of in in coming to a full understanding of what needs to be done and when it needs to be done and how much needs to be paid and so forth. But one of those key terms is this question of who is an employee. And we know that we have, uh, I guess, common law or ordinary employees. There's clearly, when when there's a clear employment relationship, employer and employee, we know the employer has to make super guarantee contributions in respect of the employee. But we also have the extended definition of employees under Section 12 of the Super Guarantee Administration Act. And we've had some recent cases that have looked at who is an employee 
under those both common law definition and extended definition, such as the MWD case, the Moffat case, Dr. Moffat was a dentist, and Olius. Do you like to speak to you know any of those cases and some of the key, uh, I guess, learnings from for, from the perspective of the ATO from those cases? Sure, thanks, Nicole. It is um, it is a complex area, and uh, it is much easier when uh, people are either in a very black or very white scenario. But in superannuation, there is a lot of grey in between, unfortunately. And uh, as you said, a, a lot of that is because we are reliant on the common law def definition of employee. Um, and even in the extended definition, so the extended definitions, um, the big one that a lot of the cases you're referring to, big extension, is about contractors who are engaged wholly or principally for their labour. And in either of those, it's often a very fact-based decision that needs to be made. And so it's not always easy to um, compare one scenario to another or to say, oh, because that person, because that dentist um, had this result. I'm a dentist, so I'll have this result. It's, and so that, that's what often makes it really hard for employers or for our staff looking at um, these questions is that um, it, it is very fact-based on the actual scenario. But you're right, there have been a couple of cases um, recently. So Dr Moffat, as you said, was a dentist who was found to be an independent contractor but still entitled to super guarantee because his contract was held to be wholly or principally for his labour. Um, and so, so that is um, an interesting example of this test in action, I guess. Um, again, as you said, there's... Um, Can I just say too, what was interesting yeah. about that case is that the ATO wasn't actually a party to that case. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and sometimes we're not. Um, the, the two others that you mentioned were we were a party to in the AAT. So the MWWD case and the um, Olius case, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, uh, which is actually the Stora Family Trust um, versus Commissioner of Taxation. So I think um, Olius was the trustee there. So in the MWD, um, person working as a service technician that provides repair and maintenance services um, was an independent contractor, um, but um, on the whole, the AAT weighing up all the factors uh, found that um, the way they were treated, the, the worker was actually treated as a principal running their own business. So that was an example of the AAT actually looking at the intention of the parties and the way the parties actually acted together. Um, in the Olius case, it was a music teacher who wasn't found to be an employee of the music school um, where he was providing lessons and um, there the tribunal really noted the control, um, the level of control that the school had over the teacher and the reality that being a one-on-one -on -one music teacher, there was, you know, less chance to actually delegate and, and all of those sorts of features that come into the employee test. But as I said, um, Nicole, one of the challenges is these, these cases are so heavily fact-based on the actual scenario that, um, you know, they can't necessarily be used as a broad principle um, changing, um, you know, the precedent perhaps. There are a couple of other cases I thought I would mention that. Yeah, great. 
um, aren't tax cases or um, sometimes Fair Work Ombudsman has cases that look at the common law definition of employee. These are actually civil matters, but they have been um, heard by the High Court in August. So there are appeals in civil matters. Um, and we actually think, I've, been, I've certainly been told by my team, you know, these are the ones to watch in the employee contractor space at the moment because they may actually make statements that create some precedent in that common law employee test. So they are um, ZG operations versus JAMSEC. Uh, which is uh, about a truck driver and whether he was an employee of the business that he worked for. And the second one is CFMMEU versus personnel contracting. Um, and again, these are both appeals from the full federal court. And that second one is about um, a labourer being whether or not they're an employee of a labour hire business who sold their services to a third party builder. And so um, these you know, we're watching these quite closely because obviously high court decisions uh, in these sorts of scenarios may actually create um, some precedent. Uh, and so they'll be they'll be really interesting to see sort of how they fall out. So ones yeah. to watch. Yeah, that's um, that's great insight that that really does highlight the uh, difference between a tribunal decision versus a high court decision. High court decisions are clearly, you know, in intent. Uh, depending on the type of matter that's being considered, you know, they can create law, uh, but mm. they certainly do set um, set precedent. So mm. I just want to check. So the cases were ZG, sorry, ZG Operations versus JAMSEC. Yes. And that was a, a truck driver there and CFMEU versus Personnel Contracting, which came or is looking at labour hire agreements. For labourers, yes, that's right. For labourers, yeah. Okay, mm. really interesting. So uh, they're still being heard in the High Court, so we don't have a decision, is that right, on those? They, the appeals have been heard and mm -hmm. um, in August, so not very long ago, and right. um, decisions are still coming. So uh, don't ask me. Uh, I have no control or knowledge over when the High Court might hand down those decisions, but, but um, we're certainly watching them closely. Yeah, great. Thank you. We might um, follow up on them potentially even with a tax hack, another tax hack episode if they uh, will have significant implications. Thanks for that. Um, so apart from this um, uh, issue and, and question about whether someone's an employee or an extended definition of an employee, some of the other implications and issues with superannuation is, is the, the non-compliance. So circumstances where, and, and the non-compliance might be because the employer doesn't actually recognise an individual as an employee, and perhaps because they see them as a contractor and they're not fully aware of the obligations under Section 12 of the Super Guarantee Administration Act, or it could just be, you know, lack of cash or all sorts of other reasons. So we have seen some changes recently that actually assist the ATO in accessing the data that you need to identify non-compliance with employee superannuation. So could you talk about some of those, um, that data that you get, uh, and perhaps also elaborate on what the super guarantee gap or the SG gap mm. is and, and what that means? Mm. Well, I thought I might start by talking about the SG gap. Um, and for those not familiar with um, our gap programs, it is a way that we um, look to try to measure across a whole system um, kind of the health of the system and it, it compares what we think should have been paid to what was paid 
Um, and we measure gaps for all sorts of things, um, for income tax, for GST, and we've been measuring one for super guarantee for a number of years now. Um, and we've actually just published our latest estimate for the gap in our annual report that was uh, just published as we're, as we're recording this. Um, and it's a, it's a measure that I should also say that the methodology is developed with and is endorsed by a panel of experts from outside the ATO. Um, so we, we think it's, you know, we've got reasonable confidence in it is the best way we have to measure this gap. Um, and we do look at different options for the different methodologies we can use in this. So at a whole level, the latest gap that we've just published shows that the net gap for super guarantee is 3.8%. In the context of you know, more than $62 billion going into the super system every year in contributions, that comes down to about $2.45 billion that is missing, which sounds like a lot in a dollar terms, and it is a lot in dollar terms, but in the context of the whole system is quite a small percentage. Um, and so and my I think understanding that's is that's going down. Is, is it that is going, going down? down. Yeah. So we like can as a measuring percentage. We've been measuring yeah. it for five years. And in the first year we measured it, it was at 5.6%. And so it's come down to 3.8%. So the trend in it um, is, is really pleasing to see that trend decreasing. So I guess that's, that's a statement at a whole of system level. Um, but it doesn't help those people who are the ones that fall into the gap and who do miss out on their contributions. So... Um, I think it, it is important to say we do take that very seriously. So while we look at that whole of system level, we do take compliance very seriously. But we do have to remember that most employers are doing the right thing. Um, and so I think that's one of the challenges for us in getting the balance right, in using the powers that we do have. Um, and our priority in the super space is to get in, uh, contributions into super funds for employees. But we also have to remember that um, the businesses, the employers who maybe haven't contributed, um, that we, we do have to get the balance right of using our powers for them. Because on one hand, we get sometimes get criticism about not cracking down hard enough. Um, and then on the other hand, we sometimes get criticised for being far too tough on predominantly small businesses, I'll be honest. And so... Um, so it is, it is sometimes a, an important balancing act for us to manage using our powers fairly and reasonably. So you did mention a couple of new powers that we've been given. So in, in 2018, um, there were some bills that were passed in 2019 that then gave us some powers to do um, a couple of things I might talk about. So we now have powers to let employees know if their employer has uh, failed to meet their super guarantee obligations and also what action we're intending to take to recoup that unpaid super. So not just the people who complained, we then have the power to, so, so effectively, um, instead of this being protected by secrecy, we do have the power now to let uh potentially the entire employee group um, that are employed by a business know about unpaid super obligations. That's an important power in the context of the the laws around what an ATO officer can disclose because that's exactly so pr right. pretty much all that the ATO holds, you know, its default position is it's all protected information. And That's it's only right. when an ATO officer has some kind of power 
you know, vested in or from the legislation that allows them to disclose that. So that's yeah. exactly right. So it is. Um, and so, again, you know, as I said, this is something where we're not just going out and um, using in a broad brush way. We are being very thoughtful about the right way to use that power um, in a way that does support um, uh, recovering unpaid super amounts and keeping people informed, but also supports businesses to stay viable and, and continue to thrive, continue to offer employment. So um, some of the other powers we were given, we were given powers to actually direct uh, non-compliant employers to undertake uh, an online course, so to do some training. So as you said, a lot of people don't meet their obligations because they don't fully understand them. So we actually have the power to direct people to undertake some education to help improve their understanding and assess their knowledge. Um, and if they don't comply with that direction, they can get um, a court-imposed penalty. So we can actually penalise them if they don't undertake their course. And, and I we have also, heard of that being yeah. being implemented. So you know, our yeah. clients are accounting firms and, of course, the accounting firm's clients are the employers, uh, the mm. taxpayers, et cetera. And, and um, yeah, we have heard that some of those employers have actually been directed to, to mm -hmm. do that online course. So, mm. yeah. So you're putting have those you powers heard, into action? We are. <laughs> have you heard any feedback? I'm curious if you've heard any feedback uh, about what they've, what they've said. I, I should have sought out more feedback, but only that they did pass, but they oh, did good. need they did need a little bit of coaching and clarification. Yeah. Well, I mean it's a great that sounds actually like it's a great opportunity that, that's for, the to kind of create a conversation mm -hmm. between an accountant, a tax um, agent and their clients too, to make sure that that knowledge kind of is really embedded. So actually that's really positive to hear, Nicole. And the other power we were given um, in those changes were to actually direct employers to pay unpaid uh, super guarantee, which, which sounds strange as the tax office. We can obviously collect it, but actually those directions, if we use them, um, can make um, business owners personally liable and can actually lead then to prosecution and, I mean, in the worst scenario, jail time. Um, we do also have some power to um, comply with security deposits, so actually get security deposits against potential um, liabilities. So, as I said, we're being really cautious about how we use these new powers and we're not just going out broadly and... Um, uh, because we do want to get that balance right. We want to, ultimately, we want businesses to be able to do the right thing, to get the support and assistance they need to understand how to do that. If they've not met their obligations, our first goal is to work with them to get back on track and, you know, either um, make contributions and in instalments if they need to or, or get themselves up to date straight away. Um, and really think about these powers being used as leverage tools where businesses aren't working with us and, and we really need um, some to take some stronger action, I guess. Um, thanks, Emma. I'd love you to just to go back to that um, power that you have mm. to direct taxpayers to pay. And mm. only because I had a conversation with, you know, some of our tax banter technical team members a little while ago where we kind of went, oh, this doesn't seem to be any different to the typical work that you undertake in terms of collecting that superannuation, but the way you described it then, you're saying that it is quite uh, different because it leads to the ability to make uh, those business owners personally liable. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Uh, yeah, that's right. So it, it is different to our normal sort of tax collection powers. So it is actually um, sort of a, a formal direction that then has penalty consequences. So um, a little bit different to, um, you know, uh, if you have a tax debt and we're trying to collect it, you have interest accruing and those sorts of things. So it's it, it gives us steps towards prosecution if, if we need to get there. Um, and as I said, sort of some potentially um, consequences through the court system. So it's, as I said, it's just another, another tool in our kit, um, but it isn't something we would use where a business is, is trying to work with us. Um, it is something we would use in really egregious scenarios where, you know, an employer really is actively not engaging and has demonstrated that they're not willing to work with us um, and they've you know, potentially got a poor compliance history. So it's a pretty serious power um, that we are going to use judiciously. Yeah, thank you. Really learned something there. I didn't I didn't actually realise that it had that different emphasis on, on mm. your, I guess, follow-up capacity. And mm. absolutely appreciate, I think everyone appreciates, everyone who deals with the ATO appreciates that the ATO does apply different approaches depending on the response of the taxpayer. You know, if the taxpayer does come forward with information, for example, if they lodge a superannuation guarantee charge statement, the, the ATO can more or will more readily work with them on options for repayment and so forth or, or payment good, of those amounts. It's a good call out, Nicole. I, I might just give one of my big shout outs I wanted to give. If an employer has missed the uh, quarterly due date for super guarantee, it's, um, it's really important they come forward and lodge a charge statement. If they do that within 28 days, they're actually not subject to any Part 7 penalty. Um, and it does mean it gives us the capacity to then work with them to organise payment plans and, and get those payments made for their employees. But it really does save them penalties and pretty significant ones if they come forward within 28 days after the end of that quarter. So really encourage anyone listening to remember that, um, uh, you know, if you have missed the due date for some reason, you can't manage to pay. But I'd really encourage people to, to get in quickly in that 28 days. And perhaps we should just um, uh, touch base on where we're at in uh, the current kind of financial year or, or perhaps I should say the current um, superannuation quarter space. So we've just had the end of the September quarter. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the onus is on the employer to ensure that the super contributions are made in respect of employees into the employee super funds by the 28th of October. So that's not necessarily just paying it into a clearinghouse. It actually needs yeah. to go from that clearinghouse and reach the employee super fund by the due date. That's right. 28th of October. And then, of course, if there is um, either failure to pay or perhaps there's a shortfall, we, we think there may be some shortfalls because people are calculating their super still at 9.5% rather than the increase to the 10%, which is this is the first quarter when that mm. increase um, is in place. Um, so either a, a failure to pay, a shortfall, or of course there's a late payment because it doesn't reach the employee super fund until after the 28th of October. That's the circumstances where you need to lodge a super guarantee charge statement or an SGC statement, SG charge statement, whatever it's called. And, <laughs> and that needs to be lodged by the 28th of November. So I always describe right. it as one month and 28 days after mm. the end of the quarter. 
So that's the 28th of November. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So I guess employees, um, oh, employers, sorry, have a few more days now. It's the, the 21st on the day that we're re recording this, 21st of October. So employers have a few more days to ensure those super contributions are made by the due date. Otherwise, the backup plan is get that super guarantee charge statement lodged by the 28th of November. That's exactly right, Nicole. Great dates um, call out. And I think um, one of the things we do hear from employers is um, many of them do use a clearinghouse. You really do need to understand your arrangements with that clearinghouse and the timing that they require. So clearinghouses often have or they all have their own requirements of how uh, many days they need before they get it to a super fund. So you need to build that into timing for the 28th of October to make sure it, as you said, is in the super fund on time. Yes, look, I, I've definitely, we all see employers being caught out with this where they don't mm. appreciate within the terms and conditions of their, mm. um, you know, contract with the clearinghouse. They don't fully appreciate the number of days that they need to allow for the clearinghouse to have, you know, receive the, their, their bulk payment for all of those individual employees, but then the clearinghouse needs time to actually then process them and deposit them into the superannuation accounts of those individual employees. And that could be yeah. seven days, 14 days. In some cases, I've heard it's even 28 days, which seems like a long time, but if you've got a contract with that particular clearinghouse, so important to understand that and, um, and you know, be very prepared right at the end of the quarter to actually make that superannuation contribution to the clearinghouse. So the clearinghouse has enough time to deposit those amounts individually into the um, employee super funds. So whilst we're talking about non-compliance, we had an opportunity with the amnesty last year to address what we call historical non-compliance. So the super guarantee amnesty was in place. Now I'll say it was technically in place from the 24th of May, 2018 to the 7th of September, 2020, but we didn't actually have the legislation confirming all the rules of the amnesty until 2020. So I think in terms of people having confidence of the ability to use the amnesty, that was really only something we had that um, confidence in the 2020 year. And unfortunately, kind of coincided with COVID, which might not have, you know, been ideal, but that was, you know, no one could have known that was going to happen. And the, the purpose of the amnesty was to encourage employers to voluntarily disclose historical non-compliance and pay those outstanding liabilities. And I thought the amnesty was very generous in the way it removed certain punitive um, consequences of non-compliance and also allowed deductions, which normally once you haven't paid the superannuation um, contributions by the due date, normally, you know, the consequences are you lose a deduction for that amount. So it's an expense of the business, but it's no longer a tax deduction for that business. That's so right. for those that used the amnesty, they, they got that deduction. And of course it was covering quarters that started on 1 July, 1992. That was like, you know, understand the introduction of superannuation for most employees. There were some mm -hmm. employees prior to that that did have some superannuation, but I guess that was the start of kind of broad. Super guarantee. Yeah, oh, the, the start super, of guarantee. super guarantee. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Thanks, Emma. 
Um, and then it went to quarters starting on 1 January 2018, which of course was up to the 31st of March 2018. So can you talk about the results from that amnesty and any kind of um, findings, mm. outcomes, et cetera, that you saw with the amnesty? Yeah, well, look, I, I think you've made a really important point um, more generally about super guarantee charge, you know, and um, when it's, you know, how it's seen as a penalty, because that fact that um, the charge is not deductible is a really big impact um, for a business. So um, that's right. So during the amnesty, uh, any late payments that were disclosed were deductible. And in terms of how it went, um, we were really pleased. We had over 28,000 employers come forward uh, to make a disclosure and, and to work with us to get those payments back on track. This, this is more than we initially sort of predicted might come forward. Um, oh, that's great. And, that's really good. Yeah, they, uh, we raised uh, around $850 million in uh, superannuation for nearly 700,000 uh, unique employees. So, um, you know, actually really successful. In, that's a lot of people who got a lot more money into their retirement savings as a result of this amnesty. Um, it's easy to sort of see them as big figures that I can read out to you, but, you know, that's, that's nearly 700,000 individual Australians who will have significantly more money in their retirement savings accounts because of this amnesty. And I think it's worth, we haven't really, um, you know, gone into the specifics of that, but superannuation is, is kind of different to other tax revenue that the ATO collects because it's about the individual's future retirement uh, mm -hmm. and about the extent to which they have sufficient funds to live you know, comfortably, which we all should do in Australia, I think, given mm -hmm. the, the nature of our country, to live actually comfortable, comfortably in retirement. So it's mm -hmm. not just about money going into the general revenue. It's about um, contributions to an individual that's owed to them as part of their employment terms and that uh, is supposed to accumulate and, and give them that um, that support in their retirement, which also means that they're less likely to call or to need support from the government in their retirement. So That's so, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, so while the tax office administers this legislation, um, I think you'll find many of my staff who are working on this um, actually love doing it because they are really passionate about the fact that we are collecting money for people's retirement savings. And, um, you know, yes, yeah, so they, the, the tax office administers it, but actually um, the vast majority of what we collect goes into super funds for individuals to have better retirement outcomes. So what's next for you after, after the amnesty? What does that mean now? For example, if someone did not come forward during the amnesty, and obviously not all of the employers came forward, if they didn't come forward during the amnesty and there's uh, an identification, a review, an audit, or some kind of follow-up um, compliance action, or they come forward at a later time, what, what does that mean now? So one of the things that um, it does mean is, I mean, there, there was a good opportunity for people to come forward. So if people do come forward now um, with unpaid super in one of those quarters that was covered by the amnesty, there's actually a restriction for us in the ATO 
in remitting the Part 7 penalty. So these are all the additional penalties that go on top of the super guarantee charge. Um, I shouldn't use that. I shouldn't just take for granted. Everyone knows the lingo of Part 7 penalties. So the Part 7 penalties uh, sort of are automatically imposed at up to 200, at 200% of the super guarantee charge. And then the ATO has the power to remit them. In those quarters that were covered by the amnesty, we are actually prevented by the law in remitting below 100%. So that means that if you are coming forward now, for a quarter that was covered by the amnesty, um, then you will have penalties of 100% of the super guarantee charge that you're liable for, which is on top of the fact that it won't be tax deductible to you. So, um, you know, that's that's quite a serious um, a serious impact for a business. Um, we do still, we can still remit for the non-amnesty quarters. We still have powers to remit and we have got, um, we can talk a bit about our um, new practice statement we've got out there about that. But um, but that is probably one thing to really um, hammer home to people about those amnesty quarters. So I always um, try and defend the ATO. Not always, sometimes I defend the <laughs> ATO. But when it comes to things like this, effectively it's a change made by the parliament that has mm -hmm. taken away some powers of ATO mm -hmm. officers. And I think that's really that's right. important to point out that um, the ATO simply does not have the capacity, doesn't have the discretion to actually mm -hmm. remit that Part 7 penalty, which, as you said, um, you know, can be or is 200% of the super guarantee charge amount. It can be remitted, or I guess reduced is another word for that. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, it can be remitted based on a number of different, uh, I guess, um, factors such as, you know, compliance history, whether the taxpayer or employer taxpayer has lodged a super guarantee charge statement, etc. Mm -hmm. But now for those quarters that were covered by the amnesty period, so those historical quarters, the ability of the ATO to reduce that Part 7 penalties it has been limited by Parliament, by, that's exactly by legislation, right. by law. Yeah, That's exactly right. And that's a reflection of the fact that Parliament also gave employers the opportunity to come forward and have... Um, you know, a much better outcome. As you said, if they came forward during the amnesty, they were able to claim a deduction and have no penalties apply. So um, it's a reflection that people have had the opportunity. Um, and for those who didn't take it, um, they've put some restrictions in there about the, um, the minimum level of penalty they want to see applied to those, those businesses. Okay, so we've looked um, we've looked at the past. Now let's go forward a little bit, mm. and we've got a few changes coming up. One on the first of November, which is only about ten days away, and that's the stapled superannuation fund concept. And then we'll go to STP phase two, which sure. is from one January twenty twenty two. But let's talk about stapled superannuation funds first. What's a stapled superannuation fund? <laughs> There's lots of lingo in super, isn't there? It's, yes. um, you've got to keep up with it. So um, it doesn't involve arts and crafts. Uh, a stapled super fund is it's part of the Your Future, Your Super package that um, the government's introduced, and there were a few elements to that. Um, I'll give a, a quick little ad break for one of them, which is the Your Future, Your Super comparison tool, which is now available on the ATO website, and uh, it lets 
people compare the performance of my super products at the moment. Um, other super products will come into the tool uh, next year, but it, um, it provides a really good comparison tool at the moment amongst my super products and shows their performance, uh, which is rated by APRA and also um, some information about their average fees and average um, returns over the last seven years. So a really excellent tool for people to look at um, how well their super fund is performing. But in I addition to, to that- Emma, sorry, yeah, just to continue right. on with that um, promotion, I did utilise the oh. um, the comparison tool, Your what is it? Your Future, Your, your Super future, Comparison super. Tool. Mm-hmm. And I'm not exactly pleased with the outcome, actually. So I need to go and and have okay. a uh, because it, my my super fund did not rate very well. So I need mm. to go and reflect on where, what options and opportunities I might have there. <laughs> that is, I mean, not fantastic to hear for you, but fantastic to hear that the service is actually doing what it's supposed to and getting you to think. And, you know, I know a lot of people kind of don't think about super very often and it's a bit hard to pay attention to, but it is a really um, simple tool to use because it's in ATO online. I'm sort of encouraging people to go, well, you know, if you do your tax return once a year, maybe this is a good chance to just have a look at your super once a year. And, and even, um, you know, tax agents who are doing your return for you might encourage you to just pop on and have a look at, um, at that comparison tool. So I'll, um, I'll finish my promo there and um, actually answer your question about stapling. Uh, so the stapled fund is another part of the Your Super, um, Your Future, Your Super package. A stapled fund is a fund that is linked to an employee um, so that it follows them when they change jobs. And there are some regulations about um, how we would choose, how we would staple a fund to someone. So we're not going to staple them to a really terrible underperforming fund. Um, But the idea is if an employee starts a new job, an employer has to offer them choice. And we would really encourage employers to keep offering choice. That that should be the first step. If that individual doesn't choose a fund for themselves, uh, then instead of just automatically going into the employer default fund, employers will have to use this stapling service first. Um, And they will ping the ATO and we will ping them back with the stapled fund for that employee. Um, and if the if there isn't, you know, if this is a new employee, they've never had a fund, they haven't started jobs, we've got a whole set of sort of hierarchies of, of what information would go back. So if they don't have an existing fund, then the default fund um, can be used. But otherwise, the employer needs to use the stapling service. Um, and the idea is that Uh, people won't collect a sort of a trail of different default funds behind them as they move around jobs. So that starts from 1 November. Um, Can I just ask, you you talked about the pinging that's going to happen, Mm -hmm. the employers going to ping the ATO. How will the my technical term. Yeah, no, it's a good good technical (laughs) term. But I'd like to perhaps get it defined. How will the employer 
ping the ATO? Ping. Um, so uh, the ping is used in uh, online services. So uh, right. online services for business, uh, employer will be able to access that stapling service. They will um, need to uh, establish uh, an employer-employee relationship with us. So obviously things like identity fraud and um, protecting people's information, as we talked about before, is really important to us. So an employer will, um, through their payroll software, many of them already lodge TFN declarations with us. So once or, or they may have actually um, already made a pay event to us. So you mean um, a, a pay event that's reported SCP, by a single yeah, touch sorry, payroll? Single yep. touch payroll pay event. Um, and through that, we can see there's that employer-employee relationship established. And once that happens, we are able to then send them back the stapled fund information. Um, and so we're working on, uh, we have information up on the website where we're um, making sure that employers know how to use it, uh, but it will be through online services that they have to use it, has to all be authenticated, um, and there will need to be that employer-employee link um, but that's really easy to do through through lodging a TFN declaration um, yep. with us through your payroll software. So the, the employer is already communicating electronically with the ATO, with their payroll, with single touch payroll reporting, et cetera. So does that right. mean they automatically have an online services kind of uh, methodology, I guess? Um, well, lots of lots of businesses do uh, have access or tax agents um, so do the as well. So the tax agents can can also request this information for their employer? I Yes, that's right. So um, a tax agent can do it too. So yeah. it's, okay. um, but, but I, will, I will encourage employers, you know, the first thing you should be doing is really encouraging choice with your employees. Yes. And yeah. many of the employers we've spoken to, including lots of the larger employers, have said that, um, you know, their focus will be on making sure that their onboarding processes um, really do enhance that, that choice aspect. And, and there's that people. obligation to, to provide that standard choice form. Absolutely. Where uh, the employer has to provide that standard choice form to the employee. And so we'd like to see the employers encouraging the employee to complete that That's and exactly to, right. to choose their own superannuation fund and of course they can all find out what their superannuation fund is and the details of that they can by going to MyGov you know That's all that information's right. on MyGov now it is it's um it's really easy to find uh they just log into yes through MyGov into their ATO online account and they can see all their super funds there they can see the latest balances of their super um, they can they can use our tool to compare their funds. They can actually consolidate their funds if they go in and find they have got multiples. And we are seeing lots of people go in and actively consolidate their funds so they don't have That's multiple great. funds that they don't need. Um, they can find any lost or unclaimed super. You'd be surprised how many people have got some, some lost super there they don't know about. So um, it is really easy to encourage your employees to go in and find an existing fund and make a choice. Yeah. So whilst we're, we're talking about the stapled superannuation fund concept, and we talked earlier about the different types of employees. So there's that obvious employment relationship where the employer recognises this person's an employee. I've got PAYG withholding, I've got superannuation, etc. But we also have, as we discussed, the contractor um, under that extended definition. So the contractor, you would expect, would um, like 
um, given that we're bringing those contractors into the superannuation employer superannuation space, um, if the employer gives the contractor a choice of fund form and it is not returned by the contractor, they would also, I assume, need to contact the ATO to ascertain the stapled superannuation fund details of that contractor. But as you said, because of things like identity fraud and so forth, and you know, use of ATO protected information um, and the importance of protecting, protecting that information, how does the employer um, confirm with the ATO that that contractor is being engaged by the employer and is an employee for super purposes in the absence of a tax file number declaration or single touch payroll reporting in respect of that contractor? Yeah, so this is this is one of the tricky um, ones we've been working through um, for the stapling service because, as you said, we know that contractors uh, don't complete TFN declarations and, and aren't traditional employees. And so um, we have been working through what the solution is. Again, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but again, we think that a lot of contractors in this situation will actually exercise choice. So um, they, they tend to be, um, you know, people who are um, more engaged with their super. We think it's going to be a smaller population of those contractors, um, but there will be the capacity for employers um, uh, or businesses who are engaging these contractors to log in um, through online services um, or by calling us to um, create that evidence of a, a relationship there. Um, and, and I know that sounds annoying for people, but um, it is really important. Um, again, there's lots of balancing in super, but it is really important for us to get that right so that um, we are protecting identities and we're not opening this up for identity fraud. So um, we we will be providing, we're still working through just what evidence we might be looking for, but um, there will be information on our website. Um, if you go to the website and search for stapled super fund um, uh, and about what information an employer will have to provide. And they will be able to do this firstly through online services. If they really can't use that, they will be able to call us to establish that link. Okay, so, so you're working on it, you're aware of the issue and uh, in 10 days time, 1st of November, do you think that information will be yes. there for, yeah, terrific. Yeah, great. it will okay. be, yeah. Yeah, great. And it's probably worth noting that an employer cannot undertake this process until 1 November, because as I understand it, the ATO officers are not authorised yet That's to right. give that information out until 1 November. It's still protected information yeah. until 1 November. And then, of course, whilst it's still protected information, it can be provided to the employer under those kind of um, circumstances where the, there's verification that's occurred. That's right. That's exactly right. So 1 November is the key date. So let's go back to single touch payroll phase two then. So that's coming mm -hmm. in from 1 January 2022, although we know that there's, a bit, uh, I guess, a kind of two month transition period where um, employers can kind of catch up mm -hmm. with the obligations. And um, whilst that's, you know, quite extensive, we can just look at it from an employer superannuation perspective. There's now going to be, as I understand it, two new salary sacrifice fields that need to be reported as part of the STP reporting, you're calling it a pay event reporting. Mm -hmm. um, so there's going to be a field to report salary sacrifice super 
and a field to report other salary sacrificed amounts. Is that right? And can you talk more about that? I sure can. So that is right. Um, so SDP2 does start from 1 January 2022. Uh, and we have announced um, that for those employers whose software will be ready for that time, as long as they're reporting by the 1st of March, they don't need to come and ask for deferrals or there won't be any penalties. But I might just also note that we know that employers are dependent on their software solutions to be able to report. And so we've been working with the software providers on their readiness. And a number of them have, we have got the power to um, grant them deferrals. And a number of them have um, come and sought deferrals. This is quite a big change for many of them and they need to get it right in their systems. Um, and then we also know that the software providers are key to working with their clients to transition them and get them ready for this change. So I would encourage employers to uh, make sure they've contacted their software provider and understand the actual start date depending on their software provider's deferral because any of the clients of a software provider who's got a deferral will automatically have that deferral. So just another bit of a shout out. I'm doing a few promos um, in this, Nicole, but, but it is really important that people don't panic and think everybody's got to start on 1 January. Get in touch with your software provider and find out their date. Um, but, yes, the big changes in STP Phase 2 are really about disaggregating some of the gross amounts and the reporting that employers have to do in STP. So at the moment there's a um, the reporting is more on a gross basis and that's been because that's been sufficient for ATO purposes. Now that STP Phase 2 is going to share data with Services Australia, um, they need it in a much more disaggregated form. So employers will have to report things like paid leave, allowances, bonuses, overtime, and as you said, salary sacrifice separately. Um, and as you said, salary sacrifice um, arrangements um, need to be separated into uh, pre-salary sacrifice income and then separately report the salary sacrificed amount. So there'll be two fields, a superannuation salary sacrifice field um, and then other employee benefits that might be salary sacrifice, such as, you know, um, novated car leases and they're often the most common ones. And, you know, it's primarily because um, Services Australia will be using this information to streamline reporting for employers. So any employers who have experience with having to report to multiple departments and do things like separation certificates for their employees will see all of that reduced because of STP Phase 2. But they'll also be using it to really make sure that um, their clients, which are often your employees, um, get the right amounts paid to them at the right time. So really um, supporting uh, their arrangements with their clients as well. I think it's worth noting too the importance of the fact that we're now reporting salary sacrifice super. Uh, at the start, I talked about there being a number of different uh, key terms that an employer needs to understand in uh, fully appreciating their obligations and their obligation okay. is to pay super guarantees into the employee super fund by the due date but to base the calculation of that amount on their um, their wages or, or I should say perhaps their ordinary time earnings and ordinary mm -hmm. time earnings now includes salary sacrifice super. So they need to add back that salary sacrifice super to the amount uh, that you know their gross wage amount in 
before they actually apply the relevant percentage, which, as we said, was 10 percent now. So that's, right. so that's going to be interesting information that I think will support data matching. I assume it's mm. going to support more data matching by the that's ATO right. to ensure that employers are actually calculating their their super contribution correctly and including in their calculation the salary sacrifice superannuation amounts. That is right. So that is a reasonably recent change in um, in 2019 that means that the super contributions, the minimum super contributions uh, need to be calculated um, by adding in that salary sacrificed amount. So on the, the ordinary times earnings before salary sacrifice effectively, uh, and that those salary sacrifice contributions can't be used to meet the minimum super contribution and and that was a change um, made um, because there were employers um, who were using those those contributions as their minimum a very problematic behavior of mm. employers can i say where their salary sacrifice super like the the the, the employee has decided they want to salary sacrifice amounts to superannuation and then the employer was using that pay, that contribution as a way of meeting their minimum super contributions. So I'm very grateful that um, that, that change to the law was made or that the, the fixing of that loophole, I think, was made. All right, well, if we can, let's just go to a couple of questions. Sure. Um, I've got a question here about when directors can be made personally liable for super guarantee charge amounts. We know that directors of a company can become liable for certain tax uh, tax liabilities, so such as PAYG withholding and now GST mm -hmm. as well, but also mm -hmm. super guarantee. Now, so they're liable for the super guarantee charge of a company. Are they also personally liable for the Part 7 penalty? which we discussed before, is on top of mm. that super guaranteed charge amount? They're not. And I'm pleased you gave me a bit of a heads up for this question so I could make sure I double-checked it for you. But no, they can't be made personally liable for that Part 7 penalty. Um, and uh, they, they are liable for the shortfall. So the super guaranteed charge itself is made up of the shortfall amount, nominal interest, and um, the admin component, the administrative component, which is the $20 per employee per quarter amount. So um, those are the amounts that um, are passed on to the employee when we collect them and we pass them on to super funds, um, whereas the Part 7 penalty is not. So that's not included in, um, in the personal liability. Great. Thanks for clarifying that, because certainly amongst the Tax Banter Tech team, we poured over the legislation and looked at all the definitions. And I think that was the general understanding, although some of us were going, really? <laughs> um, but I also note, of course, the company will still remain liable for that. So the company That's will right. still have that Part 7 obligation. And that, that's, that's not exactly going to right. disappear just because the director has been made personally liable for the SG charge component. Okay. That's right, Nicole. All right, so just in another area, we see uh, other state and territory cases uh, coming out of the state revenue offices of those respective state and territories. So, for example, we've had a recent case called the Thomas and, or the Thomas and Nars were the um, taxpayers in this case, uh, where the New South Wales Tribunal found that payments to doctors over a six-year period was wages for payroll tax purposes. So... Does the ATO monitor those kinds of cases and and look at them and assess, hmm, well, if they're wages for payroll, could they also, which is a, a different act and a different mm. definition of wages and so forth, but does the ATO consider whether they could also be wages 
for super guarantee purposes. Mm. For example, because of Section 12.3 of the SGA Act, which looks at that, those contractor provisions. Mm. Well, look, we certainly do um, keep an eye on all the all the sort of connected cases around the place that might be going on. And we talked about a few earlier that um, are of interest. So we do keep an eye on them. I think it, it also goes back to what I said before. One of the challenges is they're often heavily based on the particular facts or um, potentially in these cases on the specific legislative um, drafting and the specific legislative requirement of those um, acts that that were under consideration and so we do keep an eye on them sometimes in terms of the the value the precedential value they provide to how we then interpret the super guarantee act um, they can sometimes be a bit more limited so we're interested I mean we've, we've got some um, some very clever people who are very interested in all of this going on um, but we are sort of cognizant of thinking about what's the value they add to the interpretation of the acts that we actually have the administration of. Mm. Yeah, correct. So that all makes sense. So perhaps just finally, what are the audit priorities or areas of ATO interest for employer obligations mm -hmm. and, and separately for super? So, you know, mm. in your portfolio, what are your priorities for, for you and, and your huge team, I would assume, you know, a couple of <laughs> thousand people? Um, you know, over the next six, 12 months, two years, et cetera? Well, I mean, our, our first priority is to help employers understand their obligations and get things right from the start. So um, it would be ideal if we never had to audit or review anybody because they were all meeting their obligations. And and um, I know that, that sounds a bit funny, but it, it is genuinely our first priority to help people get things right to help understand what they need to do and to make it as easy as possible for them to do that. So you'll see a lot of investment from the ATO in ways to really make things easy for people to comply. Um, and you'll see us building more and more services into natural systems like software that businesses use um, to try to help them um, just make it simple and seamless. Uh, so that's a big focus um, on making sure that happens. Um, we are looking at, um, we're always looking at better ways to use the data that we hold and um, again, try to use that not just to catch people out, but to use that as much as we can to proactively help people get things right. So send nudges and reminders, um, identify those people who've maybe had problems in the past who might just need a gentle reminder about um, quarterly due dates coming up, those sorts of things. Um, and so that's another focus for us in how we can actually invest in, and it sometimes is some big investments in, in using our data and bringing it together and letting it make sense and helping us be proactive. Uh, and then um, our other focus is we review every single complaint we get about unpaid super. So that's a big priority for us. And we are really focused on how do we make that process as effective for the person complaining and as simple for the business to kind of get back on track and get on top of things where they've had um, where they maybe have missed a payment so we're really looking at better ways to do that better ways to engage and get in there early um, and and then uh, a you know a few tips for employers who do get things wrong we are really looking at 
you know, we will take that firmer action and um, and get more serious when a business really isn't keen on engaging with us. So um, we really do encourage people to come forward and work with us. We can enter payment plans and all those sorts of things. But but we do obviously, um, you know, have data available to us to find where there's mismatches or things that aren't um, that aren't adding up or where people look like they haven't complied. So. You know, things like pay-to-go withholding, that's still reported on the activity statements every quarter or every month, depending on how frequently you report. Um, but then employers now have to do a finalisation report in STP. You know, those numbers have to add up. So, um, you know, it seems like a really simple tip, but actually sometimes they don't. And, and that often raises a flag for us and might, might create a question. So, um, and then the other area that I have is fringe benefits tax, as we sort of touched on with salary sacrifice, but we know that's an area that is a bit confusing for employers. I'd really encourage them to have a look at our information or talk to their accountant or tax agent about FBT and think about all of those benefits that they might provide to their workers and, and think about whether there are FBT implications. So my messages are probably really try and work with if, if you're if the people listening to this are predominantly accountants and tax agents really work with your clients to help them understand what they need to do um, there's a lot of information out there to help them um, if they have got something wrong come to us early and engage with us and um, we're really keen to work with you um, and get people back on track uh, and uh, but for those who don't who don't want to engage um, we really do take it seriously and we'll be following up Great, thank you, Emma. I really appreciate that. And we might um we might finish up here, but thanks so much for being with us today, and uh, good luck. I guess um been in the the role three months. We hope that you're in there for a long time. And thank um, you. and as you point out in your bio, really looking forward to also you know seeing uh you know those other kind of. Uh, Particularly, can I say, uh, having worked at the ATO, other women develop into those leadership roles. We'd love to have a, a female commissioner one day, for example. Oh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. It's. Uh, I have to say, actually, if you have a look at our senior ranks, there are. Um, there are. Um, we are well represented. Women are well represented in the senior ranks of the ATO. We're doing a fantastic job on that, and I'm, I hope that we can keep it up. So, thank you so much for having yeah, me. Yeah, thanks for coming. There's really some fantastic tax minds in the ATO. So, really appreciate the, um, yourself, but generally the ATO giving us time um, for our tax hack episode today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. So that's it for this episode of Taxiac. I've been chatting with Emma Rosensweig, Superannuation and Employer Obligations Deputy Commissioner at the Australian Taxation Office. I really enjoyed that. A reminder for those listening that Tax Banter has an online special topic presentation now in recorded webinar format on superannuation guarantee. And in this uh, presentation, we go into great detail about the employer's obligations, especially in relation to recent and upcoming changes that we've discussed with Emma. Uh, so more details on our tax banter website if you'd like to have a look at that. So thanks everyone for listening. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, you can find Tax Banter on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your take on episodes or suggest future topics or speakers. You can also contact the TaxiAct team on email. So use podcast at taxbanter.com.au and you can also find our regular blog articles these are extremely helpful articles that can you can subscribe and they can just arrive in your email 
but we, we don't send too many, but they're always really a great resource. So you can access them at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter blog. Sorry, banter dash blog. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and write a review for the show wherever you are. It will help us to improve the profile of the show and would also love to hear your thoughts. Also, look out for an upcoming Taxiac episode that's going to explore the potential implications of the recent full federal court decision in the Bozanac case. So that's something that we uh, will hopefully have out within a few weeks. We look forward to you joining us next time. Take care. Thank you.